0: my mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. I'm your one my friends. I'm just trying to help you make some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Nothing like a little complacency to make everything way too saccharine. It's almost like people think a bell went off. So it's time to sell bonds and discover the wonders of the stock market. And that's how you end up with this positively placid tape. Dow gained 43 points, SB inched up 0.11, and the NASDAQ advanced 0.16. No surprise to regular viewers, I do not trust a benign market like this one. Too many things can surprise you. Too many things can make you panic, and of course, to make you sell. Because if you came in at these levels, you started buying today, say, you likely won't have much conviction if the market takes a sudden swoon. You are a Johnny-come-lately, my friend. You have a fear of missing out. And guess what? I think you already missed out. Just like you had to wonder what could go right when everyone was terrified at the bottom last October, now you need to focus on what could go wrong. If we're going to get a miserable surprise next week, it's going to be from the Federal Reserve, which is its latest declaration on interest rates on Wednesday, followed by Fed Chief Jay Powell's press conference. And I'm not feeling all that confident about it either. Too much, again, can go wrong. Not enough can go right. But let's not jump the gun. Let's go to the game plan to see what awaits us next week. All right. Monday, after the close, Oracle reports. Now, two nights ago, I talked about why I like Oracle on so many different levels, uh, especially for its cloud efforts, which if even joined the attention of Jensen Wong, He is the, the visionary CEO of NVIDIA, okay? Uh, he is the Oracle of AI, and he called out Oracle's role in generative AI. Unfortunately, this has become an expensive stock versus cohort of late. Plus, Oracle's traded badly going into the quarter f- for ages because it's relatively hard stock to understand, hard company. All that said, it's a solid performer over the long term, buys back a lot of stock, and a market looking for solid performance, you can do a lot worse than this one. You know what I think? Uh, maybe you buy a little bit before, but wait to see if it comes down, then buy some after, because the stock has a habit of trading down on the quarter and then going higher. Now, lots of people have been buying the stock of AMD of late, long associated with this show, betting that there's something up its sleeve when it comes to AI. We might find out, at, Uh, at their data center and AI technology presentation on Tuesday that there's some good things happening. But I got to tell you something, something better be good because this stock's now up 35 points from where it was trading when it reported last quarter. Now, we own AMD for the Chapel Trust, but I'm not patting the table up here. Uh, It's come up too far too fast. I think it's a big deal, and and it also could be having some sort of pact, maybe with Microsoft and HP, but it better be a doozy because this stock has become too hot to handle this kind of move. You know, those shows say fade it, don't trade it and stuff. All I can say is we tell people to buy it, and I can't come up here and say, hey, keep buying it. So I don't know, that fade, fade? is that called fade? Home Depot has an important analyst meeting on Tuesday, too. I think they can put things in perspective, but that eluded us when the despot reported what was widely seen as a weak quarter last. Right now, we're in Home Depot's Christmas, meaning it's gardening season. You'll probably see me there this weekend. I think we'll hear the do it yourself first are increasingly buying things. That's a change. And fixing up their own homes, which they haven't been, a- haven't been able to or willing to sell. Why? Because they don't want to lose those low mortgages they got over the last five years. Also on Tuesday morning, we have the Consumer Price Index. And while I like the trajectory of inflation, the absolute price level is still way too high because rents haven't really come down. And you know what? I don't know if you saw, but we're now getting this new rash of food inflation led by beef. Things are just too expensive out there. So the consumers tried to trade down. albeit with very little effect. Why do I care about the absolute price level of food or of anything? Because on Wednesday, the Fed speaks, and they need more encouraging inflation data if they're going to hold off raising rates later this year. Yes, if you believe the consensus, the Fed's going to skip the rate hike this time. But I got to tell you, the hawks in the Open Market Committee can make the case that the economy is still running way too hot. We know for some Bank of America figures earlier this week that the consumer has softened her spending. But she is still doing better than 2019, which the Fed knows was a very strong year. I think we get a J-PAL who's more hawkish than most people expect. It makes it clear that the data is running too hot still, so he can't be complacent. He'll pause, but give you reason to believe it's really a pause, not an end to the rate hikes. That sort of a statement will be regarded as a warning shot for the next Fed meeting. Wall Street's not going to like that. Frankly, if Powell pauses, I think he'll feel more compelled to be even more hawkish than he normally would be, which would be where the jarring surprise comes from. You want to know why we can't seem to get inflation down to where it should be? I want you to come listen to the Lennar conference call with me. This gigantic Florida-based home builder has defied the odds, putting up amazing numbers with big gross margins. The hedge fund playbook says the home builders should be losers at this point in the Fed's tightening cycle. But we've got such a huge housing shortage in this country, it's not happening. And by the way, of course, the uh, long rates, long-term treasuries, are stubbornly low. So the playbook has turned out to be useless on a group that should be half of where it is now. Hey, I worry about getting a solid quarter from Lenore coming right after the uh, Pal press conference, because I expect to hear about more expensive houses, more expensive materials, more expensive labor, a witch's brew of inflation. Oh, and let's not forget, we have our investing club meeting Wednesday at 12 noon, where we have some new ideas, but we'll also be a tad cautious about where we stand. If you're a member of the club, please shoot us your questions, because we'll try to answer as many of them as best as we can. If you're not a member of the club, frankly, what are you waiting for? By the way, if there's one thing I never get tired of, it's shameless self-promotion. 18 years of it. Thursday morning starts with retail sales. uh, And this is another reason why I've grown more cautious. What happens if the day after the Fed speaks and says we don't need to hike, we come in and retail sales are just steaming hot? The second guessing the Fed will begin immediately. And everybody will assume a July rate hike is inevitable. Food costs will be front and center when we get results from Kroger on Thursday morning. Not, en- not enough good stuff to report here, I fear. The supermarket chain should also be talking about its attempted merger with Albertsons, a deal that I think FTC chair Nina Khan ref- will not let happen. I bet she'll say there's no safe harbor, no group of stores they can sell. That will make it so this deal is not anti-competitive. Kroger's vowed to litigate. I bet they'll have to, and I'm not sure they can win, even though Kroger and Albertson actually don't even have that much overlap. For months, Adobe stock has just kind of fared okay. Not great. But over the past month, and particularly over the last few days, it's exploded higher, up more than 30%, as we've heard endless discussions about how it's a huge beneficiary of AI, and the stock has soared. Now, it's true that Adobe has crucial tools that are paired well with NVIDIA's underlying technology. I talked about them at the top of last night's show. I think this stuff's incredibly important. But at this point, can't we just say, oh, darn it, can't we just say that the stock has been discovered? This is called discovery, all right? That's what it is. What is the fade? The fade thing? No, I like Adobe. You don't have to fade it, but certainly it's it's just gone up too much. Perhaps it's been AI'd enough. Maybe that's what it is. I like Adobe very much, but now, I mean, so does everybody else. We keep hearing that the consumers are increasingly worried about a recession is pulling in spending, except for international travel. We're also hearing concerns that wages are no longer keeping up with supermarket inflation. Maybe uh, Friday's University of Michigan sentiment index will help us figure out where the consumer's head really is. I know the Fed can't win its war on inflation until the consumer stops spending and starts saving in anticipation of being laid off. I know, not a positive scenario, but it may be what's needed before the Fed's actually willing to fully declare victory, not just a temporary ceasefire, as I think they will do. On Wednesday. Bottom line, please don't be lulled into complacency like so many people seem are now that we've gotten all the way back. There's still a lot of things that could go wrong in the market, many more than I thought, and certainly a lot more than we were when we were much lower. I'd be very surprised if Wall Street's thrilled with next Wednesday's uh, Fed meeting. So prepare yourself, even as I'd love to be wrong on this, and come join the investing club for a thorough, air- thorough airing of our less than sanguine thinking. Sam in Pennsylvania. Sam,
1: Jim, I'm back here in Philadelphia.
0: Like our Phillies are not doing too
1: well, but hopefully that gets better. I uh, think it will. The- Remember, we were a we slow start last year. Yeah, slow start. I'm. Uh, I'm looking forward to the Eagles, though. At this point,
0: oh who isn't? Thank you.
1: <laughs> well, anyway, uh, as I got back, I couldn't help but be bothered by the uh, poor air quality that came through. But it seems to be getting better. Uh, so my question, my question tonight is regarding uh, a company that I continue to see more and more. Uh, you know, I spend summers up on Martha's Vineyard, and every year that goes by now, I'm seeing more and more Yeti branded bags and beaches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And You're it right. Would me, it would appear to me as though this this company, you know, they've got a market cap of less than three billion dollars. They did about one point four, one point two billion dollars in revenue last year. You know, I can't help but feel like this is a luxury brand that's developing here.
0: And, and I, I think that this might be something. I'll, I'll tell deserved. you the truth, uh, Sam, I see it everywhere too. Um, but you know what? When you look at the actual valuation of the company, it's not cheap and it's not expensive. And that's why it's been flatlining. We need a catalyst, Sam. I don't have a catalyst to pull the trigger right now for Yeti. I'm sorry. I like it too, but not enough to buy. Angelo in New York. Angelo. Hello, Jimmy the Gem. My question <sighs> for you, I bought Foot Locker
1: at 39, 100 shares. Now at 25, should I buy another 900 shares? All right, shares? Here,
0: you know, look, this is what I'm going to do. My child owns it, and we've made a bad mistake here. But, like, what I want to do is say to Mary Dillon, who I know watches the show, Mary, please come back. Come back on Mad Money and tell us, help us what to do. Because we have faith in you, and we want to know if this could be an alter turn, or did we just make a mistake? Please help us. I think we deserve it. The market's getting a little too complacent right now. I feel it, okay? And I, it's not ready for a negative surprise. I say be prepared for one, or at least raise a little you know, cash maybe, so you will be ready if it happens. Or I man, I money mean, tonight. Last year was a tough one to be a streaming company, wasn't it? But we've seen a turnaround this year that has left out Paramount Global. Huh, could this be an opportunity? Wow, that'd be a change for me. Then, I just told you I don't trust a placid market. So I'm taking a closer look at the technicals to see what the VIX and the S&P are signaling for where we could be headed. And Oshkosh announced earlier that it was acquiring a company called Aerotech. It's a unit of a thing called JBT Corp. And a deal that diversifies the specialty trucking company into something I really like at the airport. So stay tuned for more details about this very special deal. And of course, stay with Kramer.
3: NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving.
0: Last year, most of the media stocks got killed, along with anything else even remotely connected to advertising. This year, many of them come roaring back, especially Warner Brothers Discovery which is a turnaround story, and then Netflix, holy cow, with its new ad-supported cheer and its recent crackdown on password share. But there's one traditional media stock that's actually down for the year, the worst performer of the group, and that's Paramount Global, the one-time entertainment powerhouse that was created when CBS and Viacom got back together. Paramount was doing much better until about a month ago. When the year began, the stock quickly ran from the mid-teens to the mid-twenties, all the way peaking at $24 on May 1st. At that point, it was up more than 40% for the year in a tight battle with Warner Brothers for the title of Best Performing Media Play. Then, Paramount reported a truly heinous quarter, coupled with a massive dividend cut. They reduced the payout by nearly 80%, which caused the stock to lose 28% of its value in one (laughs) day. It's still some recovery from that meltdown. There's a lot going wrong at Paramount. They've been massively overspending on its content. it didn't help that the advertising market collapsed last year. Wall Street now expects them to earn 66 cents per share. That's down from $1.71 last year, $3.48 in 2021, and $4.20 in 2020. Now, there's a trajectory for you. Their free cash flow turned negative last year. Sell, sell, sell. Uh, down $500 million. And this year, it should be even worse. It's on track to be down $920 million. That's a house full of awful. The house of pain. But, and this too is a very big but, there are some incredibly smart people betting on a turnaround here. Paramount's largest shareholder is Berkshire Hathaway, which owns more than 15% of the company. Buffett is not an idiot. Paramount's controlling shareholder the Redstone family's national amusements, recently secured a big cash infusion from a newly formed merchant bank by, uh, by Byron Trott, a Goldman Sachs investment banking alumnus, really smart guy I might know personally, and the family of investment of Michael Dell. And those guys are very smart, really well run. I gotta tell you, that's a gigantic foot of confidence in Paramount's business, a total head-turner. So what the heck are Berkshire Hathaway and Michael Dell's family office seeing in Paramount Global that the sellers don't? Well, actually I can think of a few reasons. And you know, I spend a lot of time on this because all three of those people, particularly Byron Trot, so smart, you don't want to bet against them. First, while Paramount's been on a horrible trajectory over the past few years, I'm pretty confident 2023 will actually be the nadir for both its earnings and its cash flow. We know the spending here has been out of control, but managers has made it clear this year will be the peak in terms of, of content spend uh, for their streaming platform. That's very important. They've been saying this since last year, reiterated the point in the most recent conference call, so I don't know if they can go against it. In other words, they invested very heavily in streaming right at the ad market got eviscerated, resulting in some truly awful numbers. But both of those problems, they could be temporary. Second, Paramount has now done something that I never thought it would do because they spent so much money on executive. They have gotten religion on costs including layoffs of a quarter of their domestic cable staff announced last month. Third, the ad market's finally seeing a tad bit of stabilization, as CEO Bob Bakish put it, at least in the latest conference call. Put it all together, peaking streaming investments, cost cuts, stabilization advertising, and you can start to have more confidence that Paramount's earnings can actually grow next year, and their free cash flow could return to positive territory. That is the fundamental bull case for Paramount Global. That is the last this is the last bad year for business. That's why you'd be buying it. But there's another aspect to this story that doesn't get enough attention. I'm talking about sports. Now, forget original content. Paramount's got an incredible portfolio of sports rights. First, there's football. Don't forget CBS is one of NFL's core media partners, one with Fox. Nobody else comes close. While media companies don't actually make a ton of money off the NFL because the rights are so expensive, they don't care, either because football coverage makes such a terrific lead-in for uh, other programming, or, you know what, they can run commercials that shows what they have. CBS also has arguably the best portfolio of rights in college football, too. There are only two conferences that really matter these days in college football. Sorry to all the other conferences, but there's the SEC and the Big Ten. CBS already has the best SEC games, which lead their Saturday lineups in the fall. And now after a new contract that was signed last year, they'll have the rights to the Big Ten alongside Fox and NBC starting next year. Hey, speaking of college sports. CBS has the rights to the NCAA basketball tournament every year. They pack their own March Madness. They have the weekend rights for many of the PGA Tours uh, golf events. Golf's actually been going through a minor civil war over the last couple years, but the two rival golf leagues announced a detente this week, which should benefit the PGA Tour, and arguably CBS, which belongs to Paramount. The Masters. CBS. But the most uh, underappreciated aspect of the Paramount sports portfolio and why I wanted to do this piece to begin with is definitely soccer the world's most popular sport, which is finally catching on in big way in America, although it's still got a long way to go. See, Paramount the U.S. rights for something called the Champions League. That's a, an all-star league of European club soccer teams that have won or finished near the top of their own national leagues. They compete every year for what's effectively the title of best soccer team in Europe, this stuff's very exciting. Even if you didn't like soccer, you should check this thing out. Tomorrow, the season's Champions League final is being held in Istanbul, with English Premier League powerhouse Manchester City facing off against Inter Milan, no, that's right, Inter Milan, of the Italian Series A. The Serie A is like Nothing you've ever seen. I'm not kidding. I, I, all, I don't know. It seems nutty, but all my friends are glued to this, as I am. CBS Sports has announced a wave of coverage here with seven and a half hours of programming across multiple platforms, ranging from CBS and CBS Sports on TV to the Paramount Plus streaming service. I'm happy to see this lineup because, frankly, I don't think Paramount gives this Champions League coverage enough respect. Management doesn't seem to realize they are sitting on a gold mine. What a great asset this guy here. They picked up the rights for six years last August. It only cost them $1.5 billion. That may have been the smartest thing this company has ever done. I hope they figured out how to unlock the value here because there's plenty of it. If Apple were to buy Paramount, something the regulators would never let happen, they'll never bless it, but they could sell everything, keep the Champions League, and still make a ton of money merging with MLS TV. Yeah, That's right, because they have this great MLS coverage. It's really good Saturday Night Games. Yeah, this one soccer league could actually be worth more than the entirety Of the company, Paramount, at least based on the stock's current valuation and the prices flying around for televised soccer product. In the end, Paramount Global's had a no good, very bad run over the past couple of years, culminating in that miserable quarter and gruesome dividend cut just over a month ago. But when I see so many smart investors betting on a turnaround here and I do my own research, I think it makes sense to think Paramount can indeed make a comeback, a comeback. Here's the bottom line. Paramount Global stock has been obliterated, but its streaming investments will peak this year. Its cost cuts are already happening and the ad business should eventually start growing again, at which point the stock will end up looking incredibly cheap. Doesn't hurt that they got the rights to some tremendously valuable sports coverage and the stock simply not getting credit for these levels. They don't know how to tell their own story, believe me. That's why I am willing to tell the story. I am willing to take a leap of faith on Paramount. You just got my permission to buy it down here, as I think that almost all the negatives are already baked in. Mad Money is back after the break.
3: Coming up, we're miles to go until July 4th, but are we headed for an Independence Day rally? The charts are saying, let freedom ring, next. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
0: Now that the S&P 500 is up more than 20% from its lows last October, and all sorts of supposedly smart people are, are suddenly realizing that we've got a bull market in our hands... It took a while, didn't it? I think it's worth asking whether we're getting too complacent here. I know I'm kind of feeling it. That's why tonight we're going off the charts to take the market's temperature. The fellow by the name of Mark Sebastian, he's a brilliant technician who's the founder of OptionPit.com. He's our resident volatility expert. In order to get a better read on the action, he likes to watch the CBOE Volatility Index, or the VIX for short. It's also known as the Fear Gauge, because it can show you when investors are feeling more frightened or, of course, more confident. And sometimes that lets you spot situations where the average are much more likely to change course, which is what we care about. With that in mind, take a look at this pair of daily charts. see S P S&P 500 on top and the volatility index on the bottom, with both going back to the beginning of the year. Sebastian points out that the S&P made an important low on January 5th and then more higher. But we ultimately retested those early l- uh, lows in March in the wake of that Silicon Valley bank's failure. Almost but not quite a round-trip situation. Over that period, the VIX more or less did what we would come to expect from last year. It mostly stayed around 20, with the occasional big pop every time the stock market pulled back, culminating in a huge spike in March when poorly run regional banks started going under. That's exactly what should happen, up and this down, this up. By the time April came along, though, the picture changed. In the first quarter, even when the S&P was roaring, the overall level of fear in the market, at least as represented by the VIX, never really seemed to go away. In the second quarter, Sebastian notes, that's no longer the case. For the first three weeks of April, the VIX just plummeted, all right, ultimately holding around 18. From mid-April through mid-May, we saw the VIX consistently below 20. Very low, eventually heading to the mid-teens. Extremely low. During this period, Sebastian says the action volatility index was bullish for stocks. While the VIX would bounce every time the S&P pulled back, it would also make lower lows practically every time the S&P roared, which is exactly what we want to see. All right. If you're bull. So we had a nice period where the market meandered higher while the VIX slipped lower and lower. Exactly what's supposed to happen. Remember, this is the fear gauge and people get less fearful when stocks go higher. Pretty rational. Now, at the end of May, while we were worrying about the debt ceiling debacle, we actually got a substantial spike in the VIX back up to 20. And that was very telling because everyone, of course, was very scared. But that spike appears to have passed us. Then we go right back down. The volatility index plummeting to much lower levels. That's encouraging. Next, let's zoom in on the daily action, the S&P 500 and the VIX, just since the beginning of May. Since May 24th, when the S&P made an important low and the VIX made an important high. Again, remember, that's what we're looking for. This goes down. This goes up. That's typical. That's what happened. The s and up about 188 points. That's a nearly 5% move. Not bad. But Sebastian points out that the VIX has plunged from 20 20 to below 14 over the same period. And he says, that's nuts. Typically, when the S&P 1%, you expect the VIX to fall about three-quarters of a percent, meaning it would normally be around 17 after this kind of move, not 13. This is extraordinary. Carl and I were talking about this morning in Squawk in the Street. It's like this is just a miraculously low level. So w- what does that, what does it say? Remember, when Sebastian watches the VIX, one thing he looks for is to call relative underperformance or outperformance. Lately, the VIX has given us some clear outperformance. In other words, right now, the volatility index is telling us we actually don't have much to worry about. Sounds good. But, and it's very big but, that's only short-term. It doesn't mean the rest of the year will be smooth. In fact, Sebastian says you might want to take this precipitous decline in the volatility index with a grain of salt. Why? It's thanks to something new that I don't talk. No one on the network is talking enough about. It's called the rise in the popularity of S&P 500 options with zero days to expiration I'm going to repeat that zero days to expiration it's one of the craziest things i've ever seen in a long time these zero day options are just like regular options they're uh, they're you're paying for the right to buy or sell a certain security at a specified price except you lose that right at the end of the day trading options is inherently high risk to begin with right because you can easily get wiped out but trading options that are expiring within hours that's the financial version of Russian roulette. And people are pan the planet like mad. We know there's still a tremendous appetite for get rich quick speculation. Maybe it's no longer being sated by crypto, which is one reason why these zero day options have just grown incredibly popular. At the end of the first quarter, they accounted for over 40%. Of all S&P 500 options volume, I did not know that. That is crazy. These are all bets on a single day's action. That number was closer to 20% to be in 2022. Yesterday, it was around 50%. Most of which are being sold to collect a quick premium from buyers who actually don't know any better, and I think could be ill-advised. You know what happens when tons of people make highly leveraged short-term bets on the direction of the stock market? Volatility tends to explode. It might not happen immediately, but you have to recognize this is. A truly, I'm going to write it down so you know, dangerous set up. Dangerous. That's your takeaway right here. So follow me. Follow me on this. You know this because Sebastian reminds us that we saw something very similar in one of the most dreaded periods I can recall in the last 40 years, early 2018. Now, take a look at this chart of the XIV, which was an exchange traded product that was short VIX futures, an easy way for investors to bet against volatility. But that trade got way too popular. The VIX got so big that it actually had more assets under management than the VIX futures market could handle. And one day, this thing lost 93 percent of its value. In response, the VIX exploded higher and then spent the next seven months falling. As the VIX blew up, we got the horrific sell-off in the stock market, and that turned out to be a tremendous buying opportunity. But you had to be willing to pull the trigger into the teeth of the heinous breakdown. Now, of course, I remember this, because this is right when the Eagles got in the Super Bowl. And it was that Thursday and Friday that this all happened. And it was just nuts. Now, I want you to take a look at the daily charts of the S P 500 and the VIX in late 2017 and early 2018. So now we're drilling down to the exact period that I mentioned. Spatian says this kind of extreme meltdown is coming. It's coming. It's just a matter of when, not if, all because the market for these zero-day S&P 500 options has gotten too big. Eventually, there's a distinct possibility they become big enough to overwhelm the underlying S&P futures. When that happens, Sebastian thinks we're looking at a major decline. We only need a bit of unexpected bad news to cause a quick 1% sell-off. At that point, all the short premium sellers will have to cover, which will actually push the market lower, blowing out a new batch of those short premium sellers who do, do the same thing. In other words, just like what we saw back then. Fortunately, Sebastian says there's a way to see this kind of thing, a, a temporary meltdown coming. Before the XIV blow up, back in February of 2018 that I just mentioned, the S&P 500 spent the previous month rallying, and the VIX rallied right along with it. Remember, that's not supposed to happen. The VIX and the S&P are not supposed to move in the same direction. It means the fear is rising along with the stock market, which tells you that the rally might collapse under its own weight. Very frightening situation. So Sebastian wants you to keep an eye out for that kind of action. I am going to keep an eye out. Constantly. Now that I've heard about these from, from Sebastian, we're going to make a major focus out of these incredible options. Incredibly ridiculous, I should say. Here's the bottom line. The charts interpreted by Mark Sebastian Suggests the ESP has got a great short-term setup. He expects a nice rally into the 4th of July. Uh, that's a little longer in bull mode than I think. I think the end of June is going to be rocky. But he also sees the explosive rise of zero-day options as a huge unexploded landmine and sooner or later he thinks these zero date options are going to detonate. So watch out. Questions. Trey in Texas. Trey. Volatile week, Jim.
2: Tuesday lunch, I saw at a 20 ounce porterhouse and today I fished a half eaten big bacon plastic out of a city trash can, which got me thinking.
1: Could the return of this iconic sandwich be the catalyst Wendy's needs to see all time highs?
0: There's a Wendy's Baconator in a trash can. Just calling my wife. Look, if they're going to throw them away, I mean, why shouldn't she grab that Baconator? Wendy's is real good. They had a very good upgrade today. I like everything that's happening. Apparently, the end of the month was very, very strong. I think Wendy's is good. I think the Baconator is better. Let's go to Sean in Michigan. Sean. Hey, Jim, your thoughts on American Eagle? short-term, no, long-term. No, no, you know, uh, once burned, twice shy. That one really scalded me. As a matter of fact, that was actually one of the worst scaldings I've had other than uh, Bausch Health, and it, it hurts even just to, you know, when I, I see it in the mall, I go like this. I cross over. I go away from it. I'm afraid of it just because it hurt us so bad in the Chapel trust. So I'm going to have to say it's day on the American Eagle day. All right. The charge is interpreted by Mark, sorry. The charges is interpreted by Mark Sebastian points. To a solid setup for the S&P into the 4th of July. I say that you're going to overstay your welcome. But get ready for a burst of volatility when at uh, some point when these short-term options explode in our faces. Much more man money yet, including my exclusive with Oshkosh. From Ford to GM, we are focused on electrification. But what about trash and fire trucks and Baconators? Uh, well, no, not those. I'm talking to the leader in the space that's electrifying the future of industrial vehicles. Then I don't want the new bull market. I want the old bull market. I'll explain my strategy for investing in this dynamic tape. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Last week we got some big industrial news. Oshkosh, which makes equipment for vehicles of construction, defense, local governments, all kinds of other really niche vehicles that I like, is snapping up JBT Corporation's Aerotech Unit. That's a major player in aviation ground support gear, gate equipment and services for commercial airlines, airports, air freight carriers and the military. I like this deal, as Oshkosh could use a little jolt. While the stock had a nice run-up late last year after we spoke to the CEO in August, it only topped out at 106 in early February for plunging to 72 in mid-May. It didn't make a lot of sense to me that it did that, but it did. It's now back to 83. That's still way down from its recent high. So can this $800 million aerospace acquisition do the trick? Well, Oshkosh has already seen its stock jump more than 12% since the deal was announced. You typically don't see that kind of rally in the acquirer unless it's an incredibly attractive transaction. Don't take it from me, though. Let's check in with John Pfeiffer, the president and CEO of Oshkosh Corp. Learn more about the Aerotech deal and the future of the business. Mr. Pfeiffer, welcome back to Mad Money.
2: Hey, hi, Jim. Thanks for having me on on a Friday afternoon. Of course, Sean. We're always ready for you.
0: Now, once again, I think you've come up with an acquisition, a, a, a division. Nobody really seems to compete against it. I tried to find the competitors against this, this, the company you bought. I don't see any. So that must have the, <laughs> the ultimate moat for the Oscars shareholders.
2: Yeah, you know, we really like this acquisition. We've been working on this for, for a little while. Uh, probably three or four years we've been interested in it, and uh, what what this does for us is, hey, well, our sweet spot is designing and developing and applying technology, electrification, autonomous functionality to purpose-built vehicles, and that's what these are. We participate in airports today with our JLG brand that's on the tarmac everywhere with airport rescue and firefighting vehicles, and we've seen this as an opportunity to expand into other purpose-built vehicles at the airport, and uh, we're very, very happy about this acquisition.
0: Now, on your website these days, you've been saying that you actually use a lot of, uh, a lot of AI, a lot of machine learning. Uh, tell us where that fits yep. in, because I know that you suffuse a lot of the different, uh, part of, a lot of different business lines you have with AI.
2: Yeah, we do. We use it all the time in our in, at JLG. We use it uh, in the, in our defense vehicles, and when we look at the airport markets, we like these markets because where we can apply autonomous functionality will really help both the operator that's using the equipment, who's doing really tough work, making it more intuitive and easier to use. But it also helps the customer, the airlines and the airports. They want to load cargo and get planes in and out as fast as they can. They want people on and off the aircraft quickly. People that are on airplanes want to get on and off quickly. And autonomous functionality allows us to, to get those vehicles more precise, more easy to use. so that. From the time an airplane gets to the gate until the time it's leaving again, it's more efficient, it's faster, and we think that's what customers really want. So, John,
0: when I went to hear NVIDIA talk recently, of course, it didn- the uh, Oracle of AI, as Jensen Wong. he was saying that one of the things that's going to happen is there are a lot of devices, a lot of machines that are on wheels that will be uh, run by uh, robotically and not by people, and that that's going to save a lot of time and money because there's just not enough people around to do these jobs. Is that, well, that is that the case with Lascaux?
2: Absolutely, in some of our segments, it's absolutely the case, and we see that happening already. You know, right now. We've already removed people from the refuse collection environment by taking uh, the vehicle and you put a driver in and they can operate the entire functionality of the vehicle without somebody on the back. I think that we'll continue to see the driver get more productive. So in one shift, they can cover a lot more stops than with every year that goes by, and ultimately, I think you'll see some applications, you know, we compete in over a dozen end markets, you'll see some applications go completely autonomous. I think that that airport uh, ground service vehicles are probably no different from that. The continuous evolution of autonomous functionality and AI will will allow better productivity that ultimately can go completely autonomous. Uh, unmanned. Yeah,
0: I think it's going to be that's what we have to have unless we start having a lot more people, which we're not. Now, approximately $25 billion of the of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act was earmarked for yeah. funding airport growth and maintenance. Can you apply for that? How does it work? How can you tap into some of that money?
2: Well, you know, I, actually, I'm not really... Sure, at this point, but I will tell you, I think that's a good thing. Of course, it's it's always a good thing. Uh, we benefited from that with our postal contract. But uh, you know what we really like about the airport marketplace is a, it's right in the middle of our sweet spot of what we know how to do. But this industry is growing. When you listen to the to the CEOs of the airlines, when you listen to uh, FedEx and some of the cargo carriers, they need to expand capacity. Uh, airports around the country and around the world are adding terminals, renovating terminals. You can't add capacity and add a terminal without adding our equipment. So we like the growth, the secular growth of this industry over time, not only in, in North America, but around the world. We see this continuing to grow. And uh, one of the, one of the other primary reasons, we really like this segment. Oh, you should travel. So, uh,
0: loans still still growing in strong part of our economy right now. Now, uh, I do want to ask you, how's the electric fire truck business doing?
2: Oh, it's phenomenal. You know, we uh, um, we continue to uh, to build some of the early units. We've got customers that are really excited about these vehicles. Uh, as you as you remember, we had one out on Wall Street, and you and I. Uh, we're last met. Uh, this is a phenomenal product, but it's not just municipal fire, it's now happening in, happening in refuse and recycling collection. Uh, our engineers picked me up on at 7.15 on Tuesday morning and took me for a ride in one of our first fully electric, zero emission, uh, purpose-built uh, recycling and refuse collection vehicles, and it was awesome. I mean, not only is it fully electric and zero emission, but we purpose-built it for the operator for the first time ever to help them be more intuitive, more productive, easier to use, safer. Um, it's really going to be a fantastic product, and our customers absolutely love it.
0: Well, i got to hand it to you. You are where a lot of people aren't. Your stuff's the strongest and the toughest and the smartest, and you know I like your stock very much. John Pfeiffer's the president and CEO of Oscos Corp. Real good acquisition. Great to see you, sir.
2: Thank you, Jim. Great to be with
0: you. All right. Man, buddy's back after the break. Coming up. What's in your mind, Craig America? Give us a call. The lightning round is storming the
3: NYSE. Next.
0: It is time. It's time for the lightning round. Good to have the Bye bye bye. Planet Sam. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski, Daddy? Time for the lightning round. I'm going to start with Walt in mean. Pennsylvania. Walt. Hey, Mr. Kramer. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure, Walt. What's shaking? Well, one of uh, a very interesting small
1: biotech companies that I've been following for a number of years and investing in, I think is finally on its way uh, to... Uh, it's immunogen. I am.
0: Yeah, it had a good readout at the ASCO conference. We've been waiting for that cancer drug to pay off, and it actually did. Congratulations to them. But you know what? It is time to Sessil's Sessil's Sessil. and take the game. How about Miguel in Vermont? Miguel. This is Miguel Lozano speaking. I am honored to have your attention. You're very I would like to know your. I would like to know your opinion. On Ameriprise, ticker AMP. I have always liked the stock of Ameriprise. You know what? I haven't featured it, and there's a particular reason. It's not a good one. I've always felt that it's a good, solid, but not exciting stock, and my viewers wouldn't like it. That's wrong. What matters is making money. It's making money. Let's go to Jay in New York. Jay.
1: Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Booyah, uh, Jay. I'm, I, uh, I have a stock, uh, Intest, I-N-T-T. What do you think?
0: Man, that thing is so hot, it's like, it, 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 it sizzling. I, I I can't go there. 52-week high, I, I would rather take profits than, uh, than uh, buy it here. Let's go to Chris in New York. Chris. Ooh, yeah, Dr. Jimmy Chill. How we doing? Yes, the chill man's doing fine. How about you, sir? I'm doing, I'm doing. Listen, Good. I've been watching you since uh, Dr. Huang handed you an official pass card for you and your dog, NVIDIA. NVIDIA got in, I was left out. What can I tell you? That was the signal we're
1: that was a good one. Um, yeah. I managed to buy that one, and uh, you know, thankfully, recently I've uh, been able to get a free cash flow four-digit purchase out of it. Wow! Um, wow!
0: That's yeah, great.
1: it was quite nice to get that money back. But I I'm glad that you made that much money. Cash flow. Okay. Right. And I was, uh, you know, while you were in California last week, you expressed your views on nuclear power and being the cleanest, most efficient energy. It type sure of is. Blood.
0: It sure is.
1: Yeah. So I was searching along for some dividends. Stocks also, and I stumbled across a company by the name that pays a four percent dividend and also just had its third reactor come online to a hundred percent capacity, with its fourth reactor to come online in early 2024. Even though it's been burdened with dividends and overrun costs, now that it's you know operational what? and creating clean, cheap energy, right. What, know, it, 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 so I'm wondering what your long play
0: is on Southern Company. Oh, and SO, I tell you, you, you you summed it up. Once they finished that plan, I, I decide, you know what, it's okay. I think you're in good shape. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round.
4: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD
0: Ameritrade. This new bull market, I want the old one. I want the old one, the one that started on October 12th when things were so terrifying that people freaked out and sold right at the bottom. Bye, bye, bye! Now we're up more than 20% from the bottom. What happens? We start hearing about how a new bull market's upon us. Where the heck were these people eight months ago? Let's recap what happened here. Last year in mid October, we had a bottom based on the idea that inflation had hit its peak. Now, at the time, we obviously didn't know that that was the bottom being put in. They happen at the strangest times, don't they? This one was precipitated by a consumer price index number that was so hot that we knew that the Fed wasn't done tightening. But what really mattered, though, wasn't the Fed per se. It was the fact that inflation never got hotter. And that's the real reason why we bottom. Now, let's talk about what happened at the bottom. Tech, the lifeblood of this market, began to turn and reassert its former leadership. Tech's the most important group in the market because it's a large group and also because it's the most durable. You could argue that tech took off because the earnings didn't roll over when they reported. Or you could argue that the market anticipated the love affair with artificial intelligence because the oracle of AI, Jensen Wong, was already talking about what could happen if AI ignited last fall, although not many people were really paying the, pay attention to video at the time. You know what, I don't think that's a good explanation for why tech turned around, though. Even Jensen, who was very ready for this AI boom, didn't know that ChatGPT would take the world by storm and really ignite his own AI. I prefer the former explanation. Their earnings had held up when hardly anyone expected them to, and tech always does well when inflation peaks. The Magnificent Seven, Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, Microsoft, Meta Platforms, uh, Tesla, and Nvidia, the leaders from the bottom, exerted themselves right then when others faltered, even as there were some fellow travelers in the tech world that also went up too. Of course, the tech leadership didn't fully take over until March. That's when the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank triggered a mini banking crisis in this country. And that's when tech truly caught fire, right then. There were three reasons why. First, these stocks were actually cheaper versus their earnings estimates than at any time in recent memory. People forget that. Second, they all had their own catalyst that gave you a reason to buy. And third, the banking crisis made them look a lot more attractive relative to the other stocks in the market. In a sea of thousands of companies that needed credit, these big tech outfits needed absolutely none in order to execute their plans. They were already sitting on mountains of money. They strolled around like nation states. In other words, when the mini banking crisis hit, the Magnificent Seven were the safest stocks out there. If you go back to those dark days of March, you'd be blown away by just how these stocks exploded higher when nobody was looking. But now that we've had a huge and satisfying run, especially fortunately for CNBC Investing Club members, all of a sudden people are getting excited about the market. Now that we're actually overbought, they want to get bullish. Now that we've taken up stocks that I consider unworthy, like small caps with no earnings, heavily shorted stocks with difficult prospects, now, overnight, they love the market? This is wrong, people. It's wrong, the wrong time. That's why I'm advocating that you do some selling here, some schnitzeling, so to speak. This kind of bogus leadership has usually led to mistakes and losses. There's no hurry. There's plenty of money on the sidelines that will ultimately work its way into the market. I am still very bullish longer term. But right now, we're facing a Fed meeting next week where we'll likely hear about a skip in rate hikes until they resume in July. So the second guessing will begin immediately after the press conference ends. The market's had a major move higher. This is simply not the time to trade up. It's the time to trade out some stock and then wait for lower prices. I like to say, there's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise i try to find it just for you right here on Mad Monday. I'm Jim Cramer. See you Monday. Last call starts now.
1: its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Mad Money Disclaimer.
4: Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Next, don't give it to How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, <laughs> that's our legacy. Ready to be a part of it? Next go give it to you. Unlock the energy of the All-electric
0: CDX Type S. Order now at Accurate.com.